Well, it is a great joy to worship with you this morning. You all sound wonderful as a choir singing to the Lord. It is always a blessing to come to church. It's my favorite to be here on the Lord's Day with you all. and Not just because I love preaching and, and teaching, but because I love the fellowship. And I love you as you love me, and we all love one another in the Lord. And we are growing together in Christ. Our goal here is not to be entertained. Our goal here is not to be active doing all these different things, but our goal is to, number one, grow in our relationship with the Lord and glorify Him. And in doing that together, we, we grow together as well. We fellowship. That's the thing I love about the church. I have friends that I never even knew before they came to this church. And so we're all blessed in that way, aren't we, here at Grace Bible Church? This morning, we want to open our Bibles to the book of Romans. And here, we're going to look at the Word of God and what it teaches us. As believers, remember the Bible written to God's people. But it also teaches the unbeliever. If they will listen, it teaches them the way of salvation. And once we're saved, of course, it's written for believers to know the way of sanctification, including evangelizing the lost. And today's sermon is titled Gentiles and the Law. Gentiles and the Law, which is a sermon on Romans 2, 14 through 16, which I'll read to you in a moment. But what Paul is addressing here, remember, is the need for the gospel. Why is the gospel needed? Aren't we all just Christians when we come out of the womb and born in America, born into a Christian family? The Bible says no. Aren't Gentiles saved by their good works? Aren't unbelievers saved by their good works? The Bible says no, absolutely not. And Paul has been establishing that. Aren't the person, isn't the person who's never heard the gospel, never had a Bible, the guy on an island in the middle of nowhere who's never talked to anybody who lives in the bottom of a cave, is he going to be saved? The Bible says no, because he knows there is a God. He knows that God exists. He can see it in creation. And God has put it in him, Paul has told us in Romans 1, God has put it in him to know that there is a creator that should be worshipped and honored. And yet these are the questions that we often experience in Christianity today. What about the pagan unbeliever? What about the Jew? Is the Jew automatically going to be saved because they're a Jew? Do they stand a better chance, if we want to use that word, do they stand a better chance in the judgment because they're Jewish? Because they've been given the law? Paul says no. That was Romans 2.1 all the way up through 13 that we've already looked at. Absolutely not, Paul says. Yes, he will tell us a little bit later that they're blessed by just having the Bible. It's better to have the Bible than not have the Bible. But just having it, just listening to it, not at all is it going to put you ahead of the Gentile who's never heard the gospel. Not when it comes to judgment. Not when it comes to judgment. So now we get into Romans 2, 14 through 16. He's continuing this comparison between Jew and Gentile. Because the Jews think, well, they have it made. They have Abraham as their father. God made promises to Abraham, and therefore that applies to them because they're physical descendants of Abraham. They have the law of Moses. And Paul has been arguing with them. That's what Paul does in, in his letters. He makes an argument. Every good sermon should be an argument. An argument to convince the listener to obey and believe what Scripture says. And Paul's been doing that in the book of Romans. He's making an argument. Right now, he's doing it to the Jews in chapter 2. 
And he's arguing with them because he knows that they're debating in their mind as they hear this letter read. Maybe they showed up at the church in Rome. Maybe they came to see what their fellow Jews who'd recently been converted to Christ are doing on Sunday mornings. What are these people doing in Rome, the capital of the whole world at the time? What are they doing on Sunday mornings in their worship? And the preacher gets up and he reads the letter that Paul just wrote to them. And there are Jews in attendance. Or maybe he wants to help the Jews who are converted to go out and convert their friends, to proclaim the gospel to them. Maybe, maybe somebody read this letter and was saved as they heard it read in the church in Rome at its first reading. Well, let's look at Romans 2. I want to read 12 through 16. I want to give you the context where we've been and how it all is together. There is context to every passage of the Bible. Romans 2.12, for all, all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when the Gentiles, who do not have the law, naturally do the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves. And that they demonstrate the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternating, accusing and else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Here's Paul's argument. It goes in depth. He's really drilling down. He's making sure that he's handling that objection by the Jew. This is what. We are to do when people come to us with real questions about Christ, about the Bible, about the gospel. If we've been prepared, if we've been equipped like Paul, hopefully we can sit down and we can think through what Scripture says with them. Now, Paul's inspired by God to write this. And even as we look at it, we see that there's some depth here. As with Paul, there's lots of phrases, lots of commas. We've got to dig in and look at the theology here. But I do trust that God would use it, that God would help you understand this passage, help us all to know this passage and to use it in our everyday Christian walk. Gentiles are sinners. Paul's already said that. They're sinners because they don't honor God. That's Romans 1. The unbelieving Jew is right, not because they're knowledgeable of the Scripture, but they are right when they look at the Gentile and say they're a sinner. They're correct. But Paul says that's not enough. You're a hypocrite because you are right in saying they sin, The problem is you don't look at yourself. We don't look at ourselves, Paul says, when an unconverted person looks down their nose at other people. It's not enough just to know that that person is in sin. Correct, you are. But what about your own heart? And that's what he's been developing here in Romans 2. And he knows the objection is coming because he's just said, this is what we looked at last week, for all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. Those are Gentiles. They don't have the law of Moses. But look what he says in 13. It's not the hearers, but the doers of the law. So the objection in the Jewish mind is this. How can you call them doers of the law, Paul? How can you say any Gentile does the law when they don't even have a law? They don't have the law of Moses. They've never received a Bible, especially in those days. And even today we have some pagans who have never received a copy of the Scripture. So he understands there's an objection. He's got to answer it. He's got to drill down here in verses 14 through 16 and teach on 
the Gentiles and the law. So I want to show you this passage with two main points here. How he answers this objection. Two main points. First of all, everyone has an inner sense of right and wrong. Everyone. Now keep this in mind as you're talking with unbelievers. As you're talking with the professing atheists. As you're talking with somebody maybe who says, it doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what the Bible says. It only matters what each of us individually think. That's postmodernism. That truth is relative. That truth is set by each individual. Keep this in mind as we look at Paul's argument and how you might talk to such a person and evangelize them. Everyone has an inner sense of right and wrong. We're all born with it. Everyone has this morality that God gives us. And first of all, he tells us here that they have a law written upon the heart in verse 14. They have a law written upon the heart. For when Gentiles who do not have the law naturally do the things of the law. The law, capital L, in this whole discussion is the law of Moses. The law of Moses. They do not have the law. He's real clear. Gentiles do not have the law of Moses. They do not have a copy of the Bible in Paul's day. If he went out to the edge of the Roman Empire and and evangelized, let's say, the Thracians or the Scythians, he would not expect them to be carrying a Bible in their back pocket. Not even Christians, not even Jews at the time had a copy of their Bible, even though they heard it read at church and they memorized portions of it. He's saying simply, look, the Gentiles do not have the law of Moses. But he goes a step further than he's gone previously. They do have a law. Naturally, he says, they do the things of the law. Yes, the Jews have got the oracles of God. They've got the scriptures and they're commanded to follow them. But the Gentiles don't have a Bible and they still sometimes seem to do good things. Sometimes they seem to do and they actually do things that are in accordance with the Mosaic law. How is that possible? Well, he says, that they naturally do this. They naturally. It's by nature. In their hearts, God has put that there. It's by nature. They're born with it. This Greek word for nature, phusis, means the regular or established order of things. And just like all creatures are subject to the law of gravity. That is part of God's natural order of the universe. All people are subject to the natural law that God has given them. All people. No one gets out of that. You can't say, I don't have the Bible. I didn't know. It's kind of like driving down the highway and saying, Officer, I'm really sorry. I didn't see those 10 speeding signs on the interstate when I was going 95. What's he going to say? Ignorance of the law is no excuse. And you probably did see them if there's that many of the signs to begin with. Well, God has put all kinds of speeding signs upon our heart and our mind. There is a natural law. And he even says, these, these Gentiles, not having the law, they don't have the law of Moses. They're a law to themselves. They have a law, and it's a law amongst themselves. They have their own law, we might say. It's in them. It's among them. It's part of their culture. They know in their heart what is right and what is wrong. They know it. Every missionary who goes out into the mission field where the gospel has not been heard, where the Bible is not handed out, where they don't know who Jesus is, 
those cultures still have a sense of right and wrong. Many ancient pagan writers actually wrote about this. People who lived long before Christ wrote about these things. The philosopher Socrates said that it was right to venerate God, to honor parents, to avoid sexual abuse of children, and return good to those who do one good. And he said these are laws that all people have. Aristotle, another philosopher, said that some people were so virtuous, they did not need laws, for they are law to themselves. Almost exactly the same Greek words that Paul uses. He is using a phrase that the culture was very familiar with. That there are, of course, right and wrong in every culture, and people have this law to themselves. Yes, they need the gospel. He's going to get to that. But right now, he's simply establishing the fact that everyone knows right from wrong. And the Jew can't say, well, they don't even have a law. How can you say that they do the law? That's not correct. Paul says it is. It is because they have a law, a natural law to themselves. The Stoic philosophers, even of Paul's day, the ones he would have heard preaching on the street corners in Athens, preaching their Stoic philosophy, thought that living virtuously was the same as living in accord with nature. Today, the person living in accord with nature, they go out, they hug a tree, they live on the land. But back then, to live according to nature was to live according to the natural laws of the universe. To do right, to do good. The golden rule of ancient peoples. This passage, when we take this passage, when we couple it with Romans 1, it is a great doctrine to proclaim to atheists. Apologetics really is founded upon these two chapters. If you want to do biblical, presuppositional, what's called presuppositional apologetics, it's founded upon Romans 1 and Romans 2. They know God and they know right from wrong. And so you ask them, you simply ask the atheist, is it wrong to murder? And they say, of course it's wrong to murder. And then they get what you're asking. So they say, well, that's cultural. That's societal. And then you say, why? Why does every society, why does every culture know that murder is wrong? Why do they know that? Because God has put it there. You see, evolutionary theory can't explain why people know right from wrong. Right from wrong is not an evolved thing that they can even try to explain. Because the whole idea, the whole evolutionary theory is bunk. And you can disprove it simply by asking, how did right and wrong evolve? It's not possible. It doesn't work. It's a huge problem for the evolutionary theory. They've admitted this. They even have writings that say, we don't know how to explain it. It's just survival of a species. But then you ask, we're talking about all humanity knowing right from wrong. Dr. Greg Bonson, an apologist of the last century, said it this way. What does the unbeliever mean by good? Or by what standard does the unbeliever determine what counts as good? So that evil is accordingly defined or identified. What are the presuppositions in terms of which the unbeliever makes any moral judgments whatsoever? How can you even say something is right and wrong? You have to have a standard. You have to have a standard of morality to say something is right and wrong. You have to have a law. You have to have a law. And this is the law to themselves. The law that the Gentiles are doing. The law of right and wrong. And when they do those things, when they do those things, the Jew looks at them and they says, yeah, this looks like the law of Moses. You're doing things like do not murder and do not commit adultery. 
How is it that the Gentiles do this? Because God has given them a law written upon their heart. That's number two. They have a conscience. In verse 15, they have a conscience. So the main issue we're looking at is everyone has an inner sense of right and wrong. Why? Because they have a law written upon the heart and they have a conscience. Look at verse 15. He goes back to this idea of them doing the works of the law. They demonstrate the work of the law written in their hearts. God didn't put the whole five books of Moses in their hearts. That's not what he's saying. He's saying they know right from wrong. And when they act accordingly to that, then they are lining up with the Mosaic law that the Jews knew about. When unbelievers do good deeds that are also mentioned in the Bible, they prove that they have a law written in their hearts. They prove this. God put it in every person's heart, right and wrong. A child knows this. When the child hits their sibling at two years old, you should punish them. You should discipline them. But they already know before you do that that what they did is wrong. In fact, what often happens when they do something wrong at two years old? They take off. They run. Around my house, they really run. Why is that? Because they know. Yeah, there's some training and telling them that. But before that, the Bible says before they even hear the parent, they know right from wrong. We were just reinforcing that with our discipline. God put it in every person's heart to have a sense of morality. And the Gentiles often do things that line up with God's word. The Jews would have known that. Paul is saying, you've seen this with Gentiles. Jews lived all throughout the Roman Empire. Even Gentiles would come through the area of Jerusalem. The Jews would know that sometimes a Gentile does the right thing. It lines up even with the law of Moses. God has put it in them. They have a conscience too, though. They have a conscience. Yeah, the conscience bears witness, he says. It bears witness. It's another witness in addition to that law written upon their heart. There's a law that God gives, and there's also a conscience that he put in each person. Conscience literally means co-knowledge. This was a Greek word. Later, it It goes over into Latin, and that's where we get our English word conscience. But it's the same idea. It means co-knowledge. When you do something, there's a knowledge there of what you're doing. But you also have another knowledge of if what you did was right and wrong. And your conscience will convict you. Even the unbelieving pagan will be convicted when they sin. The Greeks call this co-knowledge, an inward faculty of distinguishing right and wrong. It's a tool. It's a, it's a moral compass. The MacArthur Study Bible says a warning system that activates when people choose to ignore or disobey God's law. If you have the Bible and you don't obey it, your conscience tells you that and you feel convicted. If you don't have a Bible and you disobey the law written upon your heart of right and wrong that God has put there, what's called the natural law, the moral law, then your conscience convicts you. That's what a conscience does. It's a moral compass. It tells you when you've gone off track. But it can be broken. The conscience can be broken. It can be affected. 1 Corinthians 10.25 speaks of the conscience for Christians. Paul says, Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. Because the Gentiles who used to go to the 
temples and worship pagan idols and sacrifice the meat and have this big feast right in front of the idols. Now they're Christians. And they see that same meat over in H-E-B and they wonder, can I eat this? It just came from the local sacrifice down the road and it's fresh and it's good, but I don't know if I can eat this. And Paul says, you know, don't even ask the, the people working there at the meat market. Just get the meat and go for your own conscience because their conscience would often convict them that they shouldn't eat it. It was over-scrupulous. It was weak. And we'll look more at conscience issues for the Christians later in the book of Romans. As a Christian, though, we want our conscience to be in line with the will of God. We want our conscience to be in line with Scripture. And even the pagan wants their conscience to be in line with the sense of right and wrong. Sometimes, though, the conscience can be very broken, especially in the unbeliever. Titus 1.15, to the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their mind and their conscience are defiled. Their mind is defiled because it desires sin. And their conscience doesn't wake them up when they sin. Because it's been twisted. It's been defiled. The compass has been broken. It's still there. But it doesn't work like it should. And Paul says false teachers. They have a conscience that's been seared with a branding iron. In 1 Timothy 4.2. It's been burned so much that it doesn't wake up at all to their false teaching to their sin. It's been seared. The most fearful thing that you can think about as a Christian is, my conscience seared? Is that why I'm continuing in this sin? That's really for a later sermon on the Christian life and sanctification. But there is a conscience in every person. In every person. And Paul says the unbeliever has the law written on their heart, and then they have the conscience who looks back at all their actions and says, did you obey what light God has given you? Did you obey the law, the natural law? Did you do the right thing? What the conscience will tell you. And here's how it works. And their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. This is what the conscience does. It passes judgment. It will pass judgment on what you have done. This is where we get the word guilty conscience from. The guilty conscience accuses us when we have sinned. As Christians... The guilty conscience is from us sinning and our conscience tells us that was sin, that was wrong. And we ought not to do that because it's against God's law. But the unbeliever has an even more guilty conscience. They have no hope. They have no hope of forgiveness. All of that sin guilt just builds and builds as they have this guilty conscience. Because they've gone against what they knew was right. Even if they didn't have the Bible, they've gone against what they knew in their heart was the right thing to do. And they've done the wrong thing. And so their conscience accuses them. And occasionally, occasionally they do the right thing. They do something that is right, that is good. And their conscience defends them. It tells them that is the right thing to do. God has put a conscience in people for that reason. When you sin, even the pagan knows that they've sinned against the Creator God. And they deserve punishment. But when they have done the right thing, the conscience defends them. It defends them. You know, this goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. Do you remember what happened when Adam and Eve sinned? What did they do? They went and hid from God. God shows up and they are hiding. Why? Because they're ashamed. They have a guilty conscience. They are scared 
of what they know is the punishment. They are ashamed because their conscience is telling them they have done wrong. So that's the first main point. Everyone has an inner sense of right and wrong. We all know this. We've all seen this. We expect our leaders, even if they're not Christian in our country, we expect them to at least obey this natural law. And it even will say in Romans 13 that God has put government there to punish the sinful, evil things that people do. Of course, our government doesn't always do that. But that's what we expect. That's what we hope is going to happen when we vote somebody into office. Everyone has a conscience that accuses or defends them. And everyone has this law written on their heart. The second main point here is what he says in verse 16. Everyone's secret sins will be judged. Everyone's secret sins will be judged. You have these two witnesses that are going to be brought forth on judgment day. The law will be right there as witness number one. Did you obey the law? Did you? Now we talked last week about how Christians can obey the law perfectly, but they can do good deeds. They can do things that please God. They can do things that honor God and glorify Him. We looked at all those references in Scripture, and in the New Testament even, where people are called righteous. Not perfect. Only Christ is perfect and has a perfect righteousness. But we saw over and over where people were born again. They were saved. They were justified by faith alone in the Messiah, who either was to come if they lived in the Old Testament, or who already has come. And they lived that out. And so they will be compared to the law and rewarded. They will be rewarded. They trust in Christ. They go to heaven. They will be rewarded with different rewards. But the unbeliever, his deeds will be compared to the law. Did he live up to it or not? And it will be obvious. In addition to that, as I've said, we have the conscience as well. That is a second witness. And then Paul says, on the day, these things will be accusing or defending them. The conscience will be how they obeyed the law on the day. According to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men. Paul's out preaching the gospel. He's proclaiming something new. People haven't heard this gospel. The Jew hasn't heard this gospel. They should have seen it in the Old Testament. They didn't. Their hard, their, their hard heart prevented them from seeing it. The Gentiles never heard of it. It's not just Paul's gospel, of course. It's the one God gives him. But he says, this is my message. This is my good news. This is my gospel. And according to that gospel, there's going to be a judgment. There's going to be a judgment. How much, how much judgment is still being preached today? Here's the Apostle Paul, the first real missionary to the Gentiles. How much judgment is being preached today in churches? We expect to see people saved in churches throughout the world, but there's no judgment. And Paul says, according to my gospel, there's going to be a judgment. Judgment doesn't sound like gospel, good news. He's not saying the judgment's the good news. He says there's going to be a judgment, so you need the good news is the idea. You have to tell people the bad news before you can tell them the good news. That's a huge problem, and it has been all throughout church history that people think, well, I'll just add Jesus in the gospel to my life that I've already done. My good works that I've already committed I will just add Jesus on top. He'll be the cherry on top. He'll be the ticket that gets me into heaven. The Bible says you don't have any good works that can get you into heaven. That'll just determine your rewards or your punishments in hell. That's what your works will do. That does not get you into heaven. 
In fact, they're all filthy rags when you're comparing it to the righteousness of God. You need Christ. That's his whole purpose. That's what he said in Romans 1, 16 and 17. You need Christ. It's only by faith alone. And he says there's going to be a judgment. We have to remind people of that. What does the good news even mean if we don't tell them there's a coming judgment? What does the good news even mean? By not preaching this bad news these days of the coming judgment, preachers, pastors, Christians are keeping people actually from hearing the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel is judgment is coming and we all deserve it and we deserve eternity in hell. But Christ has come as a savior. And if we have faith in him, if we have trusted in him for our salvation and turned from our sins, we can be saved from that. And yet you have all of these preachers, pastors who aren't even qualified going on and on about love, prosperity, blessing in this life now. And there's nothing about judgment, which is just making the wide road and the wide gate very easy to go on. It's paving it with good intentions. Be very nice. Just be a great Christian. You know, I like what Charles Spurgeon said about this. He said, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. If they perish, let them perish with their arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. And let not one go unwarned or unprayed for. Do you understand by not telling people about the judgment, you're actually not warning them? You're not warning them about what is to come? You're withholding the truth that God has put throughout his word from Genesis to Revelation. Read the whole Bible. See how many times judgment comes up. How many times does God warn people? God warns people over and over. Christ in all of his sermons, he's warning people. He's warning people. Of what is to come. We've got to include that. In our presentation of the truth. Paul says that according to the message of his gospel. There's a coming day of judgment. A judgment that will include. All the secrets of men. Now he's still. He's still following the flow of his argument. From verse 15. He's saying that the conscience is going to accuse. And it's going to defend every now and then. But mostly accuse. If a person is outside of Christ. They've committed quite a bit of sin that the conscience will accuse. And what is going to happen is all the secrets, all the secret sins will be exposed. Not just talking about the thought life. Yes, those, those definitely will be judged. But in context, he's talking about deeds. He's talking about outward acts, the secret sins, the sins that have been committed in private, the sins committed in secret, in dark places, sins without those closest to us knowing. Without anyone else seeing that, those sins will be judged, Paul says. The sins of people, they think they've got away with something. They think that that abortion wasn't really known by anyone else. They think that that internet history will never be known by anyone. And yet God sees all things. All of these secret sins will be brought out. Sexual immorality, either in the flesh or online. God's judgment searches all hidden sins. All those sins you committed before you were married. All those sins of parents abusing their children. And children disrespecting and dishonoring their parents. Secret sins that will be brought out. Now if you're in Christ, that's been covered. 
If you're in Christ, that's been forgiven. But he's not focused on that right now. He will come around to that at the end of chapter 3. Right now, he's talking about the pagan who has a law written on their heart and is going to be judged. And the Jew who doesn't trust in Christ and they trust in their inheritance and they think they will be saved, they'll be also exposed and judged on those secret sins. An unbeliever, this ought to be really, really scary to you. That all your secret sins, unbeliever, all your secret sins, you will be exposed on the last day in judgment and God will punish you accordingly. Let's look at Luke 12 on this. We often think of secret sins as more of the motives of the heart. And those are secret sins. If you have the wrong motives, we we think of secret sins as just thoughts. But the Bible focuses on outward acts. I mean, those are obvious. Everyone can see those once they're exposed. So Luke 12, Jesus here in verse 2, Luke 12, 2, he's warning his disciples. And he says, these are all the disciples, not just the 12, but even those who will later turn away from him. All the ones following him around in Galilee. There's nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. There's nothing. Accordingly, he says, now he gives an example. Whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetops. Every slander, every gossip, every lie, every sinful word that has been committed will be exposed. Psalm 90 verse 8. You have placed our iniquities before you, David says. Our secret sins. There is the exact phrase. There are secret sins and the light of your presence. God is pure light. He's perfect. And when we stand before him, all the darkness that we thought was covered up in our life will be exposed. Again, if you have Christ, he covers that. There is no condemnation in Christ. If you don't have Christ, it's all exposed. It's all seen. All the secret sins. Go to Psalm 139. Again, the Psalms really bring this out. We just read in in Psalm 98 and 99, we read about the... Yahweh would be the judge over all the earth. He will judge with righteousness. Look at Psalm 139, verses 1 through 4. O Yahweh, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. God knows everything, all that you do throughout the day. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down. God is watching your life, how you live are intimately acquainted, David says, with all my ways. Even before you, there is a word on my tongue. Before there's a word on my tongue, behold, O Yahweh, you know it all. God knows everything. Jeremiah 16, 17. For my eyes are on all their ways. Talking about Israel, but this applies to anyone who is turned away from the Lord. My eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from my face. God's eyes see everything. Nor is their iniquity, that's sin, concealed from my eyes. That was the problem with Israel. They they thought they could go and worship false God and do it behind closed doors and that God didn't see them. Today, we have people who think they can do whatever they want as long as it doesn't harm, they say. They, They use the word harm very loosely. As long as it doesn't harm another person. The problem is they often are harming another person and the sins that they're committing. God sees all of that. 
Ecclesiastes 12, 14, for God will bring every act to judgment. Every act to judgment. Everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. This is right after he says, fear God. Fear God as a believer. Fear God means to love him zealously. To love him so much that you don't want to sin, that you want to live a perfect life. And obey, Solomon says, obey his commandments. For God will bring every act to judgment. God knows. God knows. Not only does he know your heart, but he can bring all of those acts that we've done in our life before him on judgment day. And that's where we've been looking at all throughout this passage, this idea that it's not what you say, but what you do with your life. If you're a Christian, Jesus says, you will obey my commandments. You might not always do it perfectly, of course. You will struggle. You will go through these ups and downs of sanctification along the way. But you will live out the commands of Christ. In general, you will be growing and becoming more and more sanctified. The unbeliever, not at all. Even if they say they're a Christian, it will be obvious on Judgment Day based on what they have done. Hebrews 4.13, there is no creature hidden from his sight. No one can hide from God. But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to. He's writing to professing believers. He's writing to a group of Christians who want to go back to the law. You see, it's the opposite here in Romans 2. They're trusting in the law. They think as long as they have the Bible in their hands and hear it read in in the synagogue that they're going to go to heaven. Hebrews, the problem is they say they're Christians, but they want to go back because they're scared of persecution. They want to go back to being Mosaic Jews. And he says there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. He sees everything. We can't go back. God sees everything. We can't sneak back to Judaism. We can't sneak back to our old way of life and fool God. You can't say you're a Christian, sneak back to all the sins you used to do, keep committing them, and expect on Judgment Day that Jesus will say, well done, good and faithful servant. The Christian fights those sins. The Christian works through the power of Christ, through God's word, through the church, helping them and encouraging them, through the sermons preached, through prayer, to fight, to struggle against sin. Not to just give up and go back to those old sins and still say you're a believer. That's thinking like these Jews did. They could just go to church, go to synagogue and hear the Bible and leave feeling warm inside, feeling great. I'm such a wonderful person. Paul says, never. It doesn't work like that. God knows all things. He sees all things. And lastly, he says in this verse here, that it will happen through Christ Jesus. Everyone's secret sins will be judged, and it will happen through Christ Jesus. The Jews, who did not believe in Christ, would have been a bit shocked to hear this. They'd always thought that God would judge, and we would say, God the Father That's true, but it happens through Christ Jesus. He's the one through the whole world will be judged through him. People think of Jesus as a cuddly little lamb. My best friend who would never tell me I've done anything wrong. He is a sacrificial lamb. It says that in the Bible. For the elect, for his people, for those who trust in him. But to those who do not submit to him, do you know what Revelation calls them? It says that they will suffer the wrath of the lamb. They're actually asking to be hidden. Let the rocks fall on us so we don't have to suffer the wrath 
of the lamb. Yeah, he's a sacrificial lamb, but he is bringing wrath on those who do not believe. He will be the judge. He will know those who are his. He will recompense everyone for what they've done. The believer will be rewarded. The unbeliever will be punished. All the degrees of punishment that match their sins. There's a payment day coming. God's going to hand out payments. If you're in Christ, then he'll say, welcome, come into my eternal rest. Here's your reward. Jesus talks about giving uh, rule over cities and multiple things to do in Revelation when you read about the eternal state. But in hell, multiple punishments. Every sin will have a punishment. Every single sin. Eternally. If you're not in Christ, a passage like this, a sermon like this should frighten you. To not be in Christ and to think about the judgment that is to come. Consider that. What does it mean to be in Christ? It means to simply trust, to turn from your sins, to put all your faith in Him, to know that He's the Son of God, to believe that, to trust God's Word on that. Because there is no escape from hell. You will be compared to the standard of the law. You will be compared to it. And if you have Christ... Well, he lived a perfect life. Not only did he live a perfect life, but it was transferred to us when we believe. We got his righteousness. Now we can please God. The believer, Paul will say in Romans 8, the unbeliever, sorry, cannot please God. The unbeliever cannot. It's not even in his nature to please God. Even when he accidentally does the right thing according to the moral law, it's not pleasing to God because the next moment he's going to turn around and sin. There is no escape from judgment except through Christ. There's only one way out of judgment. There's only one way out of hell. Complete trust in Christ. Why would someone go to church one time, multiple times, hear about the truth of Christ and not believe? Why would Christians continue to think they're saved, to call themselves a Christian, but not live at all a godly life? To have this passage in Romans 2 describe them better than the other passages which describe a Christian growing in grace. It's time to truly come to Christ. It's time to come to the only one who can save. The lamb that was sacrificed for his people. The atonement that was made. The propitiation. God has wrath against sinners. We saw that. Go back in Romans 1 and we'll see how this whole discussion started here. This is how Paul starts talking about the gospel. He doesn't say God loves you and has a plan for your life. He doesn't say all of these things we hear today, he says in 118, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Now go forward. After he's talked about Gentile, he's talked about Jew. Look what he says in chapter 3, verse 10. There is none righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks for God. The seeker-friendly movement just completely got demolished by that one verse. There's no one who seeks for God. The natural man does not seek for God's glory. The natural man does not seek for the one true God because he's holy and he's righteous. The natural man fears him. We need to have a change in the heart. We need to be born again. We need to believe in Christ and trust in him. Today's that day. In the moment, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And we're celebrating the death of Christ. We're celebrating that atonement. We're celebrating the fact that we don't have to go through a judgment that condemns. Yes, there will be a judgment of works. But not the judgment that condemns to eternity in hell. 
If you're an unbeliever, though, that atonement doesn't apply to you. Children, teenagers, adults, trust in Christ. Look to Him. Why spend your whole life faking it? Why spend your whole life calling yourself a Christian? You know your own heart. Your conscience tells you. You know. Your conscience will convict you if you're living in sin and not living according to what Christ has called us to. That is what we are to think about. That is what we're about to do with our Lord's Supper. To think about the price that Christ paid for us. So let me close in prayer as the men come forward to pass out the elements. I'll close our sermon in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for Jesus Christ. You sent your son to this earth. He died for us. He paid the price. He took on flesh. He humbled himself in doing that. Lord, we don't, we don't want to have our sins exposed and judged. Thank you that we're in Christ. Thank you that we know there's no condemnation with him. And I do pray for those who are here today who don't fully trust in Christ. They don't actually believe in him as their savior and king. They haven't turned from their old life of sin. Let this message stir up their conscience. If it's a seared conscience, Lord, let it ignite the flame that I know you can do, Lord, to make their heart alive again. Help them to recognize this is the only way of salvation. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus Christ. We pray that all the children who grew up in this church will come to know him as Savior. They will love him. They will spend the rest of their lives living for his glory. We do pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.